Good morning. So, I'm Cameron, and I'm, yeah, <laughs> and I am the youth pastor here at Redemption Hill, uh, for those of you who don't know. Um, good to see a lot of my family here, aunts and cousins, and uh, pretty cool that first sermon I, this is the first sermon I'm actually giving to an all-adult um, Sunday service, so a uh, little nervous, but started thinking about it, and, and Phil reminded me as we were praying in the back that, you know, we're, we're family, and, uh, and, that, and I'm used to preaching and teaching teenagers, and for those of you who have teenagers, or teach teenagers, or remember being a teenager, know that I have nothing to fear from you, <laughs> in comparison. So, um, with that said, I, I would also like to thank everyone who has blessed my wife and I with bringing meals. Um, it's been such a blessing. And the food is delicious. And I told her, I was like, I can't wait to have another kid just so we can get some more food. <laughs> so um, can, please continue to keep blessing us with that. It's amazing. So um, <clears throat> thank you so much for that blessing. Um, we're going to be in the book of Mark this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 5. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Um, really excited to bring this message. Um, as Phil was saying earlier, we're all about the gospel here, always. And uh, we've been in the book of Acts reading about um, how the disciples have been commissioned with the gospel, seeing the gospel um, being planted in, in church plants and how it's gone forth and, and the power of the gospel. And then we've been going over doctrines, uh, different branches uh, that the gospel teaches us in, in doctrine. Um, but it's kind of been a, a little while since we've We've been in one of the gospel accounts, so I'm really excited um, for today's message. And, and the encounter in today's message, um, of all the encounters, this one always sticks out to me the most. This one is one of my favorite encounters that um, someone has with Jesus. And so uh, we're going to be in verses 25 and 34. So, <clears throat> verses 25 and 34. Um, and I'm going to backtrack just a little bit of uh, the second half of, of verse 24. It says, And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but spent, or was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you, Lord, humbly, especially me, Lord. There is many more people deserving 
to uh, be up here rather than me. Lord, I, this is such an undeserved privilege to be able to preach your word. And I thank you for this undeserved privilege and opportunity. Um, Lord, no matter how much I study or how eloquent my words may be, they will fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts if your Holy Spirit is not here working. So Lord, that is my prayer. I pray that you would edify your saints, those that belong to you, and if anyone be in here that does not know you, Lord, that you would convict of sin, that you would break us, Lord, that you would humble us, and that you would bring about repentance. Lord, we we do this for the exaltation of Christ. And we ask this and pray this in his name, for his glory. Amen. So like I said, this is one of my favorite encounters that uh, someone has with Christ. And we need, whenever studying the Bible, of course, context is key. And so I really want to put ourselves in this woman's place. We don't know much details about this woman. The Bible does not give us too much detail about her. Um, says that she was suffering from uh, a blood flow. Um, and she probably, you can speculate that she was probably young when this happened, suffering for 12 years. Um, you know, she was probably more at her adolescence, younger teens, or older teen years. Um, don't know. But, and we don't know exactly what was the cause of her bleeding out, but most likely it was some type of hemorrhaging. And for those of you younger people who don't know what hemorrhaging is, uh, Brenda's a nurse and she'll be more than happy to tell you after the service what <laughs> All the details in that. So, <clears throat> the first thing, first point I want to make, the severity of the illness. Verse 25. <clears throat> and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. To think of this woman's condition lightly would be to miss the whole point of the text. We can easily look over this text and, and compare just read over it and say, okay, great. An encounter Jesus had healed another person, great. But to miss the severity of this text, to miss the severity of this woman's illness would miss the point of this whole text. And um, one of the things I want to do to get us into context is we need to also learn um, some of the, the legal context behind this. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, turn to Leviticus chapter 15 for me. Leviticus 15. Usually Leviticus is somewhat of a harder book to read through. And when you're reading through the Bible, it's kind of one of those ones that seem a little long. um, But, man, it gives such great context of of why people acted and did certain things in the New Testament. It gives gives great context. So uh, I encourage you, Leviticus is is rich in context. Uh, Verses 25 through 31 really wish I didn't bring my small print Bible. <clears throat> if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of her discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as a bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean. 
and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be made clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And the priest shall use them for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord and for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from the uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Ah. Let me first say that the Bible doesn't give us a clear explanation of why exactly um, they are deemed unclean. Uh, Leviticus 17 talks about the importance of blood. Life is in the blood. So one with a blood, loss of blood flow uh, could be seen as not whole or uh, blood outside the body could be seen as contaminated, uh, not pure. The Bible doesn't give us a, a clear definition um, but I want to say this, all sickness, disease, and ailments of every sort are a direct result of the fall. And we read the passage back in Leviticus, and, and one would ask, why would someone have to bring a sacrifice, an atonement for sin, um, for something that was naturally something that happened, something that they didn't cause themselves? Um, this is kind of the question I asked when I read the text. Um, <clears throat> and one thing is, like I said, all disease is, is a direct result of the fall. And therefore, the laws of uncleanness were instructive tools by which God used by means to teach the Israelites those truths fundamental to their faith. Uh, one of those truths is what we call the depravity of man. Being a descendant of Adam, we are inherently born a sinner. So when an Israelite asks themselves, why should I be unclean and told for a sin for a condition I did not cause, the answer lies in Genesis 3. Because you are a direct descendant of Adam. So either way you look at it, sin is the issue. So now that we got a little bit more context, um, we see that this disease made her ceremonially unclean. To touch her, to touch anything she touches, would to render you unclean. And like I said, it's easiest for us to look over this and, and just kind of not pay much attention to it. But you think about the emotional, I like to put myself in those situations, and you think about the emotional toll that this woman must have, have felt. See, she was pretty much dismissed from her home. Her family, she was unable to, to live with her family. She was uh, most li- likely lived outside of the city with others who were unclean. If her family did care for her, it was, like I said, not in their home. She was most likely was not married. Or if she was, she was most likely divorced. Couldn't touch her. This made childbearing impossible, of course. And we have to understand, again, context, a woman that was not able to bear children or couldn't bear children in this time and day was pretty much deemed as worthless at this time. Now, uh, again, of course, times have changed. And, but at this time, women were not educated, did not have jobs. And, and there are times in the Bible where women did sell things and, and they did you know, make a living. But 
for the most part, the woman's job was to raise children. That's what we see in the Old Testament. You know, uh, Sarah giving her servant to Abraham because she was unable to bear children. How important it is. We see the same thing. Um, I believe Rachel gives her servant to Jacob. We see how important it was for them. It was their purpose. Their purpose was to bear children. Now, I will say this. Having become a recent father, uh, there is... There's no greater purpose. I mean, that is a great purpose. And I do not believe it's chauvinistic whatsoever to say, man, it is such a blessing for you women to, to carry um, your children. I, and I see this, the difference. I mean, Phil came up to me and said, man, I see the difference in your wife. Um, just the blessing that our child is to, to her and to, to me just to watch her and, and become the great mom she is in just two weeks. Uh, and... You know, just the caring of the child, such a blessing. Labor was definitely, definitely part of the curse. Uh, no joke. That is definitely part of the fall. Uh, direct result. Um, <laughs> I'm glad she's not in here right now. She's like, what would you know? Um, <laughs> but anyways, we see that she cannot live out her, her purpose. Her purpose at this time was, was to get married, was to bear children. And so she cannot live out her purpose. She couldn't even hide this disease. Being unclean, she had the obligation of, of telling people that she was unclean, lest they touch her and become unclean themselves. She was in a very shameful state. <clears throat> I'm sure she tried to cover it and hide it, like any of us would in our shameful state. She wasn't allowed to enter the outer courts of the temple. So not only are you cut off from friends, not only are you cut off from family, not only are you not allowed to live out your purpose, you're also cut off from church. As, and as it would seem, cut off from God due to your uncleanness, due to a condition that she can have no control over. <clears throat> she wasn't allowed to worship. <clears throat> and even if she could go one day without bleeding, she would have to wait a total of seven days and on the eighth day then come. Very doubtful. So she may make it a day or two, but very doubtful in those 12 years she ever attended church or temple. This disease is very serious spiritually as well as physically. In times when sustenance was iron deprived and her bleeding out, this most likely made her anemic. And I looked up some of the symptoms uh, of that, and such as becoming easily fatigued. That's pretty much the biggest one. Constantly tired, there's a paleness, shortness of breath, basically really, really weak all the time. And with disease, she would be more prone to other illnesses. So she was constantly sick, especially in this day and age, in this time. <clears throat> so another thing I want us to say, she lasted 12 years. That 
in this context, in this time, with her being so prone to illness and how medical was back then, medical advances weren't that advanced, the fact that she made it 12 years is a miracle in and of itself. The fact that she was alive, but make no mistake of it, she was surely dying. There is no doubt she is slowly, painfully, shamefully, and inevitably going to die. She is as good as dead. It is just a matter of time. I couldn't imagine waking up to that every morning. Waking up already tired. Let alone 12 years of that. Though, friends, we too suffer from a great illness, a great disease that plagues us on every level. A disease that inevitably ends in death that we too do not take very seriously. The disease of sin, which is so downplayed in our world and life today, has also made us unclean and outcast before the Lord. The disease of sin manifests itself both spiritually and physically. Spiritually, it cuts us off from God. And it pollutes everything physically to the very words that I speak is affected by sin. The very thoughts that I think is plagued by the disease of sin. It affects us much like her, right down to the most simplest task. We too are a shameful sight to bear. This disease has likewise made it impossible for us to live out our true purpose. She was unable to bear children. That was her purpose. We, our purpose as creations of God, as God's uh, beloved creation, our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the chief purpose of man. Sin makes that impossible. It is impossible to live out our purpose due to this disease. Next, I would like us to see the hopelessness of the illness. Verse 26. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. It was common practice in this time for in difficult medical situations to um, get the opinion and, and, uh, and consult many different physicians and likewise receive many different treatments. And often the treatments were, were conflicting and very abusive. Many times made the ailments worse and not better. I mean, I don't even think just a couple hundred years ago when you think about our first president, George Washington, who was, who, I think he got the flu or something. I don't know what it was. And they believed that the illness was in the blood. And so they trying to drain out that bad blood. Our first president was literally bled to death. And that was only a couple of hundred years ago. So you can only imagine the harsh treatment that she went through and was not made better, but only grew worse. Now, of course, she goes in and tries to consult physicians, try to get better. Um, but what I want us to see is the parallel that she had faith in physicians. She had faith in, in worldly aspects. 
faith, faith in worldly means to cover up her shame. This is yet another default of, of man. We long to cover up our shame and, and, and we long to do it ourselves and, and, and seek the world's means before we, we seek God's means. And I'm talking about a spiritual sense. There is a stubbornness and pride in us all that we can no longer deny that there's a problem. We desire to take it upon ourselves to fix it. Any man can testify when they're lost how they will not ask for directions or perhaps when they're sick. I, for one, am horrible at this. Uh, for example, I'm 30 years old and I think the last time I actually went to the doctor for a check it was like in my late teens. Um, and I should have so many times. Instead, I just cried like a baby on the couch while Lily took care of me. Um, most men are good at that. <clears throat> but it is our default to rely on ourselves to fix the problem. And this is no more true when it comes to our sin and depravity. We seek so many other means to numb ourselves. We put our faith and fulfillment in relationships, family, friends, our jobs, our accomplishments, drugs, alcohol, sex. We trust that these things will satisfy us, fulfill us, and make us whole. But people fail us. Relationships are broken. Jobs are lost. The highs of this wor world wear off. And we're left in a worse condition than before. That is why when I hear stories of, of famous celebrities such as Robin Williams hanging himself, I'm not surprised. That is the hopelessness that I'm talking about. The hopelessness that if I can just attain this, if I can just get that job, if I can just get this promotion, if I can just acquire this kind of reputation, if I can just acquire this kind of relationship, this kind of a family, if I can just get that little bit more, then, then I will be satisfied. Then I will be fulfilled. And then when you get it, and there's nothing more to, to attain to, there's nothing more to, to grasp for, and you're still left not only as empty, but worse off than before. That is the deepest hopelessness one can feel. That is why it's not surprising me that people kill themselves. Why those who are famous and rich poison themselves, alcohol and drugs, and kill themselves off because they're trying to numb themselves. They feel that, that hopelessness. I remember reading a, an article, I believe, of Drew Brees, who, when he finally won the Super Bowl, um, with the New Orleans Saints. He said his whole life he had, he had been working for this moment. His whole life had been for winning a Super Bowl, training. It had all been for this moment and it had finally come and it was gone. I believe his exact quote was, I felt cheated. All that time, all that effort and it came and went and he felt no different. That is hopelessness. <clears throat> she tried many different physicians before coming to the great physician. So we two sinners seek out that relief and peace in everything, anything else before we grow tired of our religious performances. 
and we are very slow to learn. A.W. Pink states, We are the prodigal son, who when he had squandered his substance in the far country and riotous living and began to be in want, instead of returning to the father straight away, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and went to the fields to feed swine. Likewise, the sinner who has been aroused to his need, instead of going once to Christ, tries to work himself into God's favor. But he will fare no better than the prodigal. The husks of the swine is all that awaits him and will be his portion. End quote. I want you to notice her desire. In verse 26, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. That right there, she had spent all that she had. In the end, the things that we long for, the things that we try to attain throughout our lives, in the end, they mean nothing. She was willing to give everything, anything, just to be healed. That's why you never hear anybody on their deathbed saying, I wish I worked a little bit harder. I wish I worked longer hours. I wish I made a little bit more money. I wish I was more successful in the business world. Those things do not matter when you're facing death. Our wallets, we do not grasp when we face death. We do not cling to our reputation. In the end, the things of the world matter not. It was not until the woman had spent all that she had that she sought Christ. It is not until we sinners come to an end of our own resources that we will take ourselves to the Savior. Before any Savior can be saved, he must first come to a place of realized weakness. A realization of your sinful, hopeless state is the only prerequisite to salvation. I say it again. A realization of your sinful, hopeless state is the only prerequisite for salvation. Sometimes God needs to lay you flat on your back before you'll look up to him. So you'll look up to him. Next we see the hopeful report. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Hero Christian is your exhortation. When we recap this woman's life, her great despair, all that she had gone through, she has no hope. She has little, and all that she does have, she has given away to be made well, but only to be made worse. She is in that hopeless state. But she hears about a report of Christ, of this teacher. When all hope is lost for her, she gets a glimmer of hope in this report. The text doesn't say how she came to hear it could have been family that ran up to her and, and told her, hey, 
We've heard of this great rabbi who's been healing everyone. It could have been those with her who were unclean themselves and, and said, one of our friends just got healed by this guy. You should go check him out. She could have overheard people talking about Christ. You never know what people are going through and the pain that they're dealing with. You never know how a report of hope that is in Christ might be the very thing a perfect stranger needs. It could be a perfect stranger talking about Christ. It could be a conversation that we have that someone overhears. The Bible doesn't tell us how she heard about the report. I don't think it's important. The important thing is that she heard. And somehow she did hear. Yet how timid we are. We shy away from telling those that need this good report, this hope. How often I am quiet when I should be loud. And how often I am loud when I should be quiet. How often do I stand in the midst of friends, co-workers, and family that need to hear this report, but yet I am silent? That's the one thing about writing sermons, the first person they convict is you. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are Christ's ambassadors making an appeal to be reconciled unto God. To be an ambassador is to go on behalf of a king and his kingdom. We talk about being gospel-centered. The gospel means the good news. It should be the front page, the headline of our lives, but in our conversations, it, it tends to be more of a footnote. Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What? It's not only a duty. It's a great privilege. The means by which God could use to, to share the gospel with, with lost sinful men. And he chose you. He chose me. And we, we shy away from it. We act more ashamed of the gospel than unashamed. Verses 28 and 29 the act of hope. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The text tells us that the crowd was pressed up against Christ. It's like a concert around him. Everyone smashed up against them. And I, I, I wondered, like I said, I like to put myself in the context in this person's shoes. You know, how did she, how did she get to Christ? And her weakness, and her fatigue, and her 
uncleanness, how does she get to Christ in that great crowd? Part of me thinks that she may have used her illness to her advantage, screaming out, unclean, unclean, and as people moved out of her way, apparently she's a running back. Uh, people probably moved out of her way as she screamed that she was unclean. <clears throat> what I love about this part of the text, this is one of my favorite parts of the text, is that she said, that if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. We've talked about her despair. We've talked about how hopeless she is, right? I mean, she's, she's given everything. She's done everything. This is it. We're done after this. If this does not work, I might as well go dig my grave. Death, as it would seem, would be a sweet relief at this point in time. If I, if you were in her situation, would we not, I would bear hug Jesus. I'd be like Jacob. Do not let, I'm not letting go till you bless me. And yet she says, all I need to do is graze his garment. This is her last opportunity. The, prowls, the crowd is pressed up against him. He's walking. Who knows when he'll, if he'll be back? Who knows if she'll get a second opportunity? This is life and death. And she says, all I need to do is grace. I don't need to get his attention. I don't need to lay his hands on me. I don't need to, to grab hold of him. If he is the Christ... All I need to do is graze. All I need to do is reach out my hand and have one of his threads that touch him, touch me, and I will be made pure. That is faith. Because if she was not sure that this was Christ, that this was the Messiah, this was her savior to be, she would have been like me and ran up to him, begging him and clinging onto him, grabbing him, not letting him go. Faith is all I have to do is allow a thread of his garment to touch me. This wasn't the first time that Jesus had healed people by them simply touching his garments. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we read that Jesus' clothes became radiant white. White garments present purity. His glory and purity are manifested even in his garments. This impure woman touches the pure garments of our Lord and she is made pure. It has the opposite effect that it should. She is healed immediately. Now she still has to wait seven to eighth day to go to, to, go to church and go to the temple and, and make a man to bring her um, sacrifice. But make no mistake of it, at the moment of her encounter with Christ, she is made well. In the moment she encounters Jesus, she is healed. In the moment we come to Christ, we are healed. There is still that sanctification process. And ultimately the glory when we are with him in heaven. But we are healed immediately. Next, verses 30 to 34. 
the genuine touch. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus asked this question not out of ignorance. It's not like Jesus is not in control of his abilities. It's not like she stole his power. He is, in, he is no doubt sovereign. He was waiting, I believe, to heal her. I have no doubt in my mind that he knew what was about to happen. Knowing of her healing, she comes forth in fear and trembling. And he asks, who, who has done this? It reminds me of, of God. In, in the garden, you know, God knows where Adam is. Adam's hiding, and he says, Adam, where are you? You know, Jesus knew who she was, where she was. He says, who touched my garments? And she comes in fear and trembling. Uh, no doubt, I mean, she knows she's healed. And now she's like, oh, man, they're going to kill me. I just got healed. They're going to kill me for, for touching the rabbi. I mean, this is was, this was a big no-no. You didn't touch him. You're not supposed to touch him, let alone a, a rabbi, a teacher. <clears throat> no one ever healing. She comes forth in fear and trembling. And Jesus says, who touched my garments? And, and she comes forth and says, Luke 8 tells us that she tries to hide. <laughs> Hidden. But Christ sees her and is useless. And she comes fearful and prostrate before him. She proclaims all that she was suffering and how she was healed by him. And I don't know if she realized at this time that she was trying to make a case for herself that she was proclaiming the glory of Christ. <clears throat> but here's the thing. She doesn't come claiming her worth. She doesn't come saying he owed it to her. I know she was fearful because she wasn't supposed to touch him. She was not supposed to go to him. She was not supposed to touch a rabbi. But in her great despair, saw no other choice. And I can't imagine what the conversation was like, but I guarantee she did not depend upon her worthiness. She knelt down before Christ and said, Lord, I know I'm not supposed to touch you. I know I'm unworthy, but this is my last hope. You're it. You're all that I have. After this, I'm done. I, I know I'm not worthy, and that's not why I touch you, because I'm worthy. I touch you. I know I'm unworthy, but without you, I have no hope. You're all that I can cling to. 
I've tried the ways of this world, Lord. I've tried to cover up my shame. 12 years, Lord, I'm done. I'm tired of being sick. I'm tired of dying this slow death. I saw no other opportunity. I saw no other, no other way. That's faith. <clears throat> Proclaiming God's glory. Now, Jesus tells her that she's healed of her disease. Now, she was already aware of her healing. So what is the point of Jesus telling her that her faith has made her well? The form of the Greek verb translated has made you well can also be rendered has made you whole. Has made you whole. It's the same Greek word often translated to save. And is a normal New Testament word for saving from sin. Which strongly suggests that this woman's faith in Jesus also led to spiritual salvation and healing. I love the irony in this text. Her touch is supposed to make him unclean. Yet, not only does it not make him unclean, but it makes her clean. Her blood defiled, but when she touches him, she's healed because his blood will sanctify. You see, her healing is not really the gift here. It is her salvation that we be made possible by the spilling of Christ's blood, by the outflow of Christ's blood. It's a beautiful, very, very deep text we have here. I want us to notice another group in this encounter. A group that is often overlooked. Those that were pressed up against him. The disciples said that they were all touching him. I can't imagine the disciples' reaction when he says, who touched me? What are you talking about, Jesus? Everybody, who hasn't touched you? Look around you. We're pressed up. Everybody has been touching you. Who hasn't? Yet her touch was different than all theirs. There were those who no doubtedly, undoubtedly came out to see this Jesus who people have been talking about. And maybe he took the day off work to go see what this was all about. There were those who were interested. There were those who had a sickness and disease or, or some kind of ailment in which they wished to be healed of. <clears throat> Yet her touch was different from all the rest. That great multitude, that great crowd represents a great multitude that are in the church today. I represent some of you right now. There are many that will admit to their imperfections. Many that will travel out of their way and, and come out on a Sunday to church to get a glimpse, to get a hearing of this Jesus. They hear his teachings. 
You are more than willing to come out to church and pat Jesus on the back, per se, as they did. Say that he is good, that yes, he is God, and that yeah, even that, you're a sinner. But you've never come to that desperate moment, moment of true repentance. You never let go of everything else in your life and reached out your hand in utter despair that you may take hold of Christ. You're willing to come to church and add Jesus to your life, but unwilling to make him your life. You will come to see what he can do for you instead of being in awe of what he's already done for you. You never come to that point of brokenness because you don't understand the disease that is in you. You've never been in that moment of true despair and brokenness. James 2.19 says that you believe that God is one. Basically, you believe that there's a God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder with fear. This belief of Christ will not save you. A belief of God, a belief of Christ will not save you. It is only when we come prostrate before him knowing that there is nothing good in and of ourselves. It is when we come in despair crying like that tax collector beating upon his breast. Lord, forgive me. Save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. There is nothing good that I can bring. There is nothing good that I can cling to. There is nothing that I can do. It is only by your grace, your mercy. You've never come to that state of brokenness. You've heard the accounts of Jesus. You've seen his works. You've heard of other reports about him. You've heard other people talking about him. You come to church. You even maybe read your Bible, but you've never come to the point of brokenness over your sin, not realizing that you are in desperate need of a saving grace that you can never attain of yourself. heart breaks for you. Psalms 51, 16 through 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It is not our money it is not our, our attendance that God cares about. He cares about our brokenness over our sinful state. And you know what? Here's the thing. When you do come to Christ and you are saved, those things automatically just kind of fall into place. When you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added unto you. I quote the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, it will not save me to know that Christ is the Savior, but it will save me to trust him to be my Savior. I shall not be delivered from the wrath to come by believing that his atonement is sufficient, but I shall be saved by making that atonement my trust and my all. The pie, the essence of faith lies in this, a casting oneself on the promise it is not the life buoy on board the ship that saves the man when he is drowning, nor is it his belief that it is an excellent and successful invention. No, he must have it 
around his loins and his hand upon it, or else he will sink. Your trust that there is a God, your trust and, and belief that there is a God, and that he is good, not only will it not save you, it condemns you further. Because you do not act on that trust. You do not act on that belief. You won't let go of everything else to reach your hands out just to get a touch to grasp Christ. After this, how inconceivable would it have been for this woman after her encounter with the Savior, her healer, to continue to visit with the physicians. How inconceivable would it have been for her to continue to go through the abusive treatments of these other physicians? How inconceivable would it have been for her to go back to the soiled rags of her shame? Yet when you walk out those doors and you continue in the lifestyle, that's exactly what you do, Christian and unbeliever both. There are many Christians who, who may have made a, a, a genuine proclamation of faith, but you continue in the lifestyle, the soiled rags of this world and of your shame. You continue to seek the means of this world to satisfy you. Some of you who are not believers, maybe, We'll walk out those doors and go back to those racks. Go back to that abusive treatment that the world offers that will never satisfy. Don't go back to that way that you lived before. I speak to you, unbeliever. Let go. Let go of this world uh, of of your pride and cast yourself upon Christ. And to you believer, to you Christian, this act of of broken repentance, it it is not a one-time ordeal. It's a new nature that we take on. We're not broken once and, and then, okay, every time we sin, we should be broken over our sins. It's an act of sanctification the brokenness over our sins. That is our standard for living now. We too are to be, as John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In closing, I hope I've conveyed to you how beautiful this encounter truly is. Her state was one of utter hopelessness and despair as well as we. Death was inevitable and sure. She was unclean. Therefore, the Old Testament law required that the unclean can never come into the presence of a holy God, yet the Holy One comes to her. This is the gospel. That God's kingdom has come to reconcile sinful man to himself by the works of Christ. It's blood for blood. She's healed of her blood flow because Christ would spill and flow his. 
She's saved from her sins. We are saved because nothing but the blood of Christ. It is that great exchange. And I hope and I pray that you will make that today if you have not already. Do not be the bystanders on the side whose touch are without faith. As we transition into communion, if you do not know Christ, I urge you not to take part for you are bringing more judgment upon yourself. But just because you don't take part and you still walk out those doors, hearing what you've heard today, there's still that judgment. Do not walk out those doors. Grab Phil, grab an elder, talk to us, talk to anyone. Don't walk out here without the precious, beautiful gift that God has given you in Christ. And Christian, if you are in sin, repent and be rejuvenated by remembering what Christ has done. That is why we take communion every week is to be reminded, and not only reminded, that the sacraments are a means of grace. We are to take them accepting that forgiveness, accepting that, that new cup of new covenant, that forgiveness that that represents his body, that was broken, that should have been our body. That blood, that flow, that cleanses, that should have been our blood, that atones for us. Be rejuvenated in that time. Give glory to God. Let us pray. Father, we, we again humbly come before you. Lord, this woman had no right to touch you. She had no right to ask for your healing. Lord, we too have no right. There is no deed that we can cling to. Our sin has tainted us, all of us. God, there is nothing that we can cling to in and of ourselves. It is only Christ. He is the only thing we can cling to, Lord. So Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of everyone in this room. May your Holy Spirit convict of sin. May your Holy Spirit bring about rejoicing in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. We thank you for that precious blood. It is only in the blood of Christ in which we are sanctified and are saved. Lord, be glorified in this moment. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.